You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Monday, March 6th reading of the Christian Science Monitor. My name's Beth Tavino. U.S.-China conundrum. Can hotline diplomacy work if trust isn't a goal? This article is written by Howard LaFranchi, who is a staff writer. From Washington. Shortly after the U.S. Air Force shot down a Chinese balloon that had traversed the continental United States for several days last month, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin placed a call to his counterpart in Beijing. At his disposal a special hotline intended to help the two increasingly competitive global powers to prevent sudden tensions from deteriorating into full-blown crises. The call went unanswered. The Pentagon later lamented the lost opportunity for the two sides to talk out the balloon flare-up before it devolved, as it soon did, into a diplomatic imbroglio. For its part, China's defense ministry confirmed that its chief, Wei Fenghei, had declined to take the call because the U.S., by its action, had, quote, failed to create a proper atmosphere, end quote, for a bilateral dialogue. The episode was instructive, say national security experts. China's cold shoulder to a hotline call from Washington underscores glaring misunderstandings in the U.S.-China relationship and key differences in how the two sides view crisis management. Moreover, they add, it very likely portends a future where tense moments in an increasingly fraught big power confrontation end up bigger crises because of a lack of reliable and mutually trusted communications channels. It is worrying when, as we saw in the Chinese response to the balloon incident, There's this rejection of the channels of communication that could help prevent something dangerous from spinning out of control, says Victor Cha, the Korea chair and senior vice president for Asia at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the CSIS, in Washington. The U.S. grew accustomed to working with what some simply call hotline diplomacy, after decades of at least figuratively turning to the famous red telephone to diffuse tensions with its chief Cold War adversary, the Soviet Union. Diplomats say partial credit for the world's two major nuclear-armed powers managing to avoid a nuclear confrontation must go to the crisis communications channels the two established. Evidence that those channels are still operative with post-Cold War Russia surfaced last month when the White House revealed that it had informed the Kremlin of President Joe Biden's unannounced trip to Kiev hours before his departure from Washington. The notification was given for de-confliction purposes, according to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who offered no further details because of the sensitive nature of those communications. The difference from the China case is that both Washington and Moscow value the lines of communication and trust their interlocutors at least enough to share sensitive and even difficult information with them, experts say. Increasingly for Washington, they add, the challenge is going to be, how do you establish potentially disaster-prevented communications channels with an adversary when the other party doesn't want them, 
and is suspicious of your motivations for wanting them. The problem for Washington is that the PLA has never been interested in these channels, says Michael Green, a National Security Council Asia advisor in both the Bush and Obama administrations, referring to the People's Liberation Army, China's military. It views transparency and confidence-building communications as disadvantageous for them. The Chinese, he says, are wary of any steps that might encourage or normalize what they see as provocative behavior. They don't want to make it easy for us to do what we're already doing, like flying patrols over the South China Sea, says Dr. Green, now Chief Executive Officer at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. They want us to be anxious and nervous, he adds. So confidence building and trust are not exactly priorities. In line with that, news reports have quoted various unnamed official and unofficial Chinese sources considered close to the government as saying, in the wake of the balloon crisis, that Beijing sees the U.S. obsession with hotlines and crisis management as a way to normalize increasingly brazen behavior. For Dr. Cha at CSIS, China's reluctance to use communications as a tool of crisis management points up profound differences in the natures of the two powers' military systems. In our system, our main goal is to avoid escalation and to resolve the situation, he says. In the Chinese system, the impulse is not to be blamed for a mistake and not to be bearer of bad or difficult news. It's not just that the PLA doesn't want to talk to our military, he adds. It's that no one wants to be the one to take bad news to the top. Dr. Green recounts nearly three decades of experience in the U.S. government when he worked on initiatives aimed at smoothing communications with China. The two sides reached a maritime security cooperation agreement in the later 1990s designed to allow the commander of the U.S. Pacific Command to get through quickly and directly to his Chinese equivalent when some movement of ships or confrontation threatened to boil over. It didn't work, he says. By 2001, when bilateral relations were shaken by a mid-air collision over the South China Sea between a Chinese fighter jet and a U.S. Navy EP-3 reconnaissance plane, Dr. Green was serving on President George W. Bush's National Security Asia team. President Bush made 12 attempts to get through to his counterpart, Jiang Zemin, said, but he couldn't do it. That was very concerning in the White House at the time, he adds, but everything suggests we are no better off 20 or 25 years later. Indeed, many former officials and U.S.-China experts say the lack of useful communications channels is, if anything, more worrisome today. That's because the relationship has turned more confrontational and tense as China has built up its military might, including its nuclear arsenal, while asserting itself more forcefully in its neighborhood, including over Taiwan. At the same time, the U.S. is rebuilding and extending its military presence across the Indo-Pacific region. Dr. Cha says in his view, the Chinese aren't being tactical with their lack of transparency. I don't think they want to be unpredictable as a way to deter you. But he says that, as the balloon incident demonstrates, 
They don't want to communicate, so they go immediately to disinformation. He also notes that instead of dialogue, the Chinese have increased provocative actions near Taiwan and stepped up their harassing of U.S. reconnaissance planes. China is supposed to be a great power, but this is not how great powers act, he says. And no one seems to think China's approach to big power communications and crisis management will change anytime soon, since it is so deeply rooted in their system. Dr. Green looks back at the evolution of U.S.-Soviet crisis management and hotline diplomacy and notes that it was the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and a sense that the world had teetered on the nuclear precipice that convinced both sides of the necessity for open channels of communication. The cynical view today would be that we just need to get to the brink of destroying the world for the Chinese to come around on this, he says. Indeed, he adds, it's not just cynics who worry that it might take a Cuban Missile Crisis to set up these kinds of crisis management lines that both sides answer. Is democracy worth fighting for? Argentine Oscar nominee inspires a yes. This article was written by Erica Page, a staff writer for The Monitor. From Buenos Aires. In November 1976, eight months into a military dictatorship, Graciela Lois's husband disappeared. A month later, nursing their three-month-old daughter, she joined other spouses, siblings, and parents searching for missing loved ones. Collecting evidence of the dictatorship's atrocities was dangerous, heartbreaking work. Over the next seven years, an estimated 30,000 individuals would disappear, many tortured and murdered in clandestine detention centers across Argentina. We all felt fear, says Ms. Luis, but it came second to wanting to know the truth. On Sunday, the drama that portrays their real-life courage, Argentina 1985, is up for an Academy Award in the international feature film category. The movie, which leans heavily on actual events that unfolded in 1985, takes place only two years into Argentina's fledgling democracy. For the first time in history, a civil court condemned and prosecuted a military dictatorship for its crimes, and it was made possible by victims like Ms. Luis, daring prosecutors, and a ragtag team that took great personal risks to ensure democracy prevailed. In an era of democratic recession, where faith in democracy is faltering worldwide, the film is hitting a chord in Argentina and abroad with those who believe democracy is still worth fighting for. In 2022, 84% of people surveyed globally by Watchdog Freedom House said democracy is important for their country, but only 56% said they lived in a democratic country. Argentina 1985 offers a poignant reminder. Democracies don't stand on their own, but require courageous commitment from all. It's not about choosing some official that's going to make the decisions and tell us what democracy looks like, says Ms. Luis. It means collaborating and committing, not waiting and watching as a spectator. She celebrates the film, but says it's not for people like her, who lived through the terrors of that dark period, 
but instead for the younger generations who may need reminding about what is required of citizens for democracy to thrive. Democracies work, she says, but they work because we make them work. Argentina has a strong track record of producing winning films about its dictatorship. But most, like The Secret in Their Eyes, which won an Oscar in 2010, focus on the horrors of the so-called Dirty War. Santiago Mitre's Argentina 1985, available in theaters here since September, digs into the aftermath. What stands out is the humanity of its remarkably ordinary protagonists. Instead of seasoned human rights activists or politicians, the film's heroes are civil servants, youth, victims, and family members of the disappeared, who suddenly find themselves responsible for holding leaders of the dictatorship to account. Their resolve earned the movie a nine-minute standing ovation during its premiere at the Venice Film Festival. In the movie, as in real life, Argentines had little reason to trust their new democracy in 1985. The previous democratic government had lasted a mere three years before the military took over. So, it's perhaps unsurprising that the chief prosecutor, Julio Strasera, played in the film by Ricardo Darín, at first doesn't want any part in prosecuting the dictatorship's most powerful military officers. He goes on to head up what would become the world's first truth commission. He and his deputy, who heralds from a family with deep military ties, turn to a loyal band of helpers in their early 20s who don't have careers to put on the line. They traverse the country collecting evidence for the trial. One of these young figures is played by Leila Bachara. The casting crew for Argentina 1985 discovered her on Instagram. She's graduated into the pandemic. She had graduated into the pandemic with a degree in political science and began posting videos about politics on social media. In preparation for her role, Ms. Bachara interviewed the real people who helped Mr. Strasera collect evidence back in 1985, and she was struck by what she calls their courageous innocence. These weren't revolutionaries. But they were certain that something had to be done, she says. Sometimes it's necessary for there to be a group of people who are naive enough to believe that things really can change, because that's the way they do change. What worries her in Argentina today is the despair, or worse, the apathy, she sees among peers who have grown disillusioned with the political system. Ms. Bachara says the movie creates space for tough conversations. It's motivating, because there's a history behind you. There is someone who faced worse monsters. On a recent Wednesday evening, the movie is not over, but a downtown Buenos Aires movie theater breaks out in triumphant applause, along with spectators in the on-screen courtroom following the closing arguments. When the theater lights come up, viewer Norberto Vaffieri is flush with emotion, thinking back to 1985 when he was 14 years old. He says the veil of terror from the dictatorship lasted into the 1990s. Young people today don't know how costly their freedom was, Mr. Vaffieri says. Some do. Aliona, who left Russia for Buenos Aires when the war in Ukraine began, saw the film with a group of Russians also opposed to the war. She cried throughout. 
The movie gives me hope that nothing is forever, she says, giving only her first name out of fear of retribution for speaking out against Russia. No dictatorship is forever. Things can change, and there can be justice. The 1985 trial of the juntas was a first step for democracy, but the fight for truth and justice didn't end there. The dictatorship garnered significant support among the middle class, many of whom were unaware or in denial of its crimes. Were it not for the efforts of organizations like Familiares, of which Ms. Louise is still a key member, and collective memory sites, including former detention centers, Argentina's history could have been swept under the rug. Indeed, when Guillermo Rodolfo Perez learned in 2000 that the family who raised him were not blood relatives, but that he had been born to kidnapped parents in Buenos Aires' most infamous clandestine detention center, he knew little about the dictatorship. His supposed father was in the Air Force, his high school on a military base. Since his biological grandmothers, both part of the Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo, found him, he has given hundreds of talks nationwide about the human rights abuses that shaped his life. He sees Argentina 1985 as a powerful tool for historic understanding, combating the ignorance he still encounters today. Every time I tell my story, no matter how many times I've told it, it touches another fiber, he says. It has never been easy, but it has always been necessary. This is just unreal. California deals with epic snowfall. Just three months ago, virtually all of California was in a drought. But recent storms have dumped enough snow to shut down highways and ski resorts and trapped residents in their homes. Low groundwater levels, however, persist. This article was written by John Anzac, who's with the Associated Press. From Los Angeles. Tremendous rains and snowfall since late last year have freed half of California from drought, but low groundwater levels remain a persistent problem, the United States Drought Monitor data showed last week. The latest survey found that moderate or severe drought covers about 49% of the state, Nearly 17% of the state is free of drought or a condition described as abnormally dry. The remainder is still abnormally dry. Clearly, the amount of water that's fallen this year has greatly alleviated the drought, said Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles. It has not ended the drought completely, but we're in a very different place than we were a year ago. California's latest drought began in 2020, and no relief appeared in sight heading into this winter. Three months ago, virtually all of California was in drought, including at extreme and exceptional levels. Water agencies serving millions of people, agriculture, and industry were told to expect only a fraction of requested allocations. The turnabout began with a series of atmospheric rivers that pounded the state from late December through mid-January, building a huge Sierra Nevada snowpack, causing flooding, toppling trees, and smashing the coast with extreme surf. Water authorities began boosting allocations, and after a few largely dry weeks, powerful storms with Arctic air returned in February, 
creating epic vistas of white-capped mountains while shutting down highways and ski resorts and burying communities in enough snow to collapse roofs. The drought monitor shows three regions have received the most benefit from copious precipitation, including snowfall measured in feet rather than inches. The central Sierra and foothills are now free of drought or abnormal dryness for the first time since January 2020, the drought monitor said. The central coast from Monterey Bay to Los Angeles County is also now drought-free, along with two counties on the far north coast. Although the snowfall could help to restore groundwater levels, above-ground residents are dealing with the immediate effects. At David and Kelly Gora's home in Big Bear Lake, the snow on the roof is now touching the snow on the ground. They shoveled a small area to let their dogs go outside, but are mostly hunkered down. We've been through some big storms, but this is just unreal, David Gora said. I've never seen anything like it anywhere. Anthony Cimino said he's been snowed in for about a week in the mountain community of Running Springs. He finally managed to clear his decks, but not for long. I woke up this morning and there was another two and a half feet on them, he said. It's kind of like Groundhog Day. Residents of these towns are grappling with so much snow, they're running out of space to put it. Clearing one area adds heaps to another. Grocery shelves had run bare of some items, like bread, and were running low on eggs and milk Tuesday. Cars remained buried under snow and roads closed. Governor Gavin Newsom on Wednesday last week proclaimed a state of emergency in San Bernardino and 12 other counties to support disaster relief by making state agencies and aid available and asking for federal help in clearing and repairing highways. The governor announced that the state was bringing in more snowplows and road crews to help clear roads and he authorized the California National Guard to mobilize for disaster response as needed. The rain has improved California soil moisture and streamflow levels, while the snow has increased mountain snowpack to much above normal levels, the drought monitor said. Most California reservoirs have refilled with water levels near or above average, but groundwater levels remain low and may take months to recover. As of Thursday, the water content of the Sierra snowpack, which provides about a third of California's water, was 170% of the historical average on April 1st, when it is normally at its peak, according to the State Department of Water Resources. Department officials plan to conduct a Sierra snow measurement on Friday and hold a briefing on how the remaining month of California's traditional snow season will impact the state's water supplies. Mr. Swain said the snowpack could become the largest ever observed in parts of California. The outlook calls for a continuing wet pattern, particularly for northern parts of the state, and more feet of snow, he said. If we can get through the rest of the season without any more roof collapses or snowmelt floods, it will be quite a boon, Mr. Swain said. The snowpack potentially could face threats such as early heat waves or, as some forecast models have hinted, a warm atmospheric river that could cause melting and flooding. Mr. Swain said California is expected to remain cold and the likelihood of the atmospheric river is very low.
I think that snowpack is going to take well through the summer to melt, and some shaded patches might still be there in the autumn, he said. While reservoirs have been filling from shockingly low levels, recovery has not been uniform, as demonstrated by the state's two largest water storage facilities. Lake Oroville, 65 miles north of Sacramento, is at 73% of capacity, 116% of average to date. Another 90 miles north, Lake Shasta is only 60% full, 84% of average to date. Mr. Swain said he expects Shasta to get good inflows during snowmelt season because the snowpack there is slightly above average, although not exceptional. The U.S. Drought Monitor is a joint project of the National Drought Mitigation Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Empathy Without Borders Israelis crowdfund to help Palestinians. After Israeli settlers torched the Palestinian town Hawara, an Israeli-led fundraising campaign collected hundreds of thousands of dollars to help Palestinians. The majority of the Jews are against extremism, against racism, said fundraiser Yaya Fink. This article was co-written by Isaac Scharf and Amy Bentov, both with the Associated Press. An Israeli-led crowdfunding campaign has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for Palestinian residents of a West Bank town that was set ablaze by radical Jewish settlers, the organizer of the drive said Thursday. Some 12,000 Israelis donated nearly 1.7 million shekels, that's $465,000, since the campaign was launched this week. The fundraising effort was a rare instance of cooperation between Israelis and Palestinians at a time when tensions have been surging between the sides over spiraling violence. As the Monitor reported last week, before the ink dried Sunday on the agreement reached during the highest level direct Israeli-Palestinian talks in years, violence burned in the West Bank, killings, revenge attacks, the torching of homes and cars. It was a vivid reminder for many of the urgent need for de-escalation and the immediate challenges facing this rare diplomacy, but also of the questionable ability of Israeli and Palestinian leaders to calm or even control the situation on the ground. Scores of Israeli settlers went on a violent rampage in the northern West Bank town of Hawara late on Sunday setting dozens of cars and homes on fire after two settlers were killed by Palestinian gunmen there earlier in the day. One Palestinian was killed by Israeli fire during the incident, the Palestinian health ministry said. Palestinian media said some 30 homes and cars were torched. Photos and video on social media showed large fires burning throughout the town of Hawara, scene of the deadly shooting earlier in the day, and lighting up the sky. In one video, a crowd of Jewish settlers stood in prayer as they stared at a building in flames. And earlier, a prominent Israeli cabinet minister and settler leader had called for Israel to strike, quote, without mercy. As videos of the violence appeared on evening news shows, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appealed for calm and urged against vigilante violence. 
I ask that when blood is boiling and the spirit is hot, don't take the law into your hands, Mr. Netanyahu said in a video statement. The Israeli military said its chief of staff, Lieutenant General Herzl Halevi, rushed to the scene. It said troops were being reinforced in the area as they worked to restore order and search for the shooter. Gassan Douglas, a Palestinian official who monitors Israeli settlements in the Nablus region, estimated around 400 Jewish settlers took part in the attack. I've never seen such an attack, he said. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas condemned what he called, quote, the terrorist acts carried out by settlers under the protection of the occupation forces tonight. We hold the Israeli government fully responsible, he added. The European Union said it was alarmed by the violence in Hawara and that authorities on all sides must intervene now to stop this endless cycle of violence. The UK's ambassador to Israel, Neil Wigan, said that Israel should tackle settler violence with those responsible brought to justice. The rampage, the worst such violence in decades, prompted Israeli activist Yahya Fink, an observant Jew, to launch the fundraising initiative. I had very bad feelings for when I saw hundreds of religious Jews try to burn Hawara, including innocent people, he said, adding that it delivered a message that the majority of the Jews are against extremism, against racism. He said most of the money was raised within the campaign's first 12 hours. Mr. Fink said the money will be sent as compensation to Palestinians whose property was damaged in the attack. He said he received threats from opponents to the campaign who called him a traitor for raising money for the Palestinians, even as some are carrying out attacks. While the rampage prompted international condemnation, Israel's government, which is made up of pro-settlement ultranationalists, expressed little outrage and only called on the perpetrators not to take the law into their own hands. However, some lawmakers went even further, including Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, who said Hawara should be, quote, erased, but by state authorities and not by private citizens. He later backtracked on those remarks. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price on Wednesday called on Mr. Netanyahu to, quote, publicly and clearly reject Mr. Smotrich's comments, describing them as repugnant and disgusting. On Thursday, U.N. spokesman Stephanie Dijarek called Mr. Smotrich's remark about Hawara irresponsible and unacceptable. The U.N. chief, Antonio Guterres, has reiterated his call for all sides to refrain from incitement, inflammatory rhetoric, and all acts of provocation. Major General Yehuda Fuchs, head of the military central command in charge of the West Bank, said this week the army was not prepared for the intensity of the Hawara violence, which he called a pogrom done by outlaws. He was using a term that usually refers to mob attacks against Jews in Eastern Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries. More than 60 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli fire this year, about half of them militants, according to a tally by the Associated Press. Palestinian attacks against Israelis have killed 14 Israelis during the same time. 
It has been one of the deadliest periods between Israelis and Palestinians in years. Not worthy of a democracy. Behind India's slide on press freedom. This article was written by Sarita Santoshini, who is a contributor to the Monitor, from Delhi, India. India's waning press freedom struck an international chord last month when dozens of tax officials descended on the BBC's Mumbai and Delhi offices and spent three days questioning staff, searching documents and emails, and cloning employees' phones and laptops. The raid, or, quote, survey, as authorities called it, came weeks after the BBC released a documentary examining Prime Minister Narendra Modi's role in a spate of deadly anti-Muslim riots in 2002 when he was chief minister of Gujarat state. The government immediately invoked emergency laws to block its distribution in India. The ordeal follows a broader pattern of the Modi administration using the legal system to silence critics and illustrates the growing challenges Indian journalists face. It is hard not to trace dwindling freedoms to the 2014 election of Mr. Modi and his Hindu nationalist brand of populism, according to Daniel Bastard, head of the Asia-Pacific desk at Reporters Without Borders, the RSF. Still, there are other factors at play as well, including market consolidation, self-censorship, and weak legal protections for journalists. The result is India has fallen to the 150th rank out of 180 countries on RSF's 2022 World Press Freedom Index and is described as, quote, one of the world's most dangerous countries for the media, end quote, in the accompanying report. Through the BBC case, the world is discovering how the government in India can censor some programs, says Mr. Bastard. But for an average Indian journalist, this is nothing new. A government advisor claimed there was no connection between the BBC documentary and the tax search. But in a press conference held during the raids, a different spokesperson accused the broadcaster of being anti-national and, quote, unleashing the most venomous attacks against our country. In the last few years, such statements have become routine. In 2021, tax officials raided offices of the Danik Baskar Group, which publishes one of India's most widely read Hindi dailies, whose articles had been critical of the government's handling of COVID-19. While authorities have the right to conduct searches, it's being misused as a tool of harassment today, says Omgar, national editor at Danik Baskar. That's not democratic. India does not have a spotless history of free speech. In 1975, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi declared a 21-month emergency during which constitutional rights were suspended, the press was censored, and journalists were jailed. Journalists reporting from small towns and rural areas have long been vulnerable to violent attacks. But experts say the journalism industry has never before faced such serious pressures on so many different fronts. Despite India's reputation for a vast and vibrant news industry, 
Most of the major outlets today are owned by large, family-controlled conglomerates, which also invest in other large industries, and some of which are politically affiliated, an RSF study found. This level of concentration and cross-ownership means journalists often feel the need to censor themselves and avoid reporting on so-called forbidden subjects, Mr. Bestard says. In December, billionaire and close Modi ally Gautam Adani acquired New Delhi Television, or NDTV, long considered one of the last and most prominent independent voices in mainstream Indian television. A number of high-profile journalists quit soon after. This is the end of a kind of pluralism in mainstream media, Mr. Bastard says. While a number of independent news organizations persist, they are generally small and published mostly in English, leaving many average Indians consuming news of dubious objectivity appearing on social media or in pro-government media. As in many other countries, there's been a pattern in India whereby fake news peddled on social media often seeps into primetime debate. Days before the BBC raids, for instance, TV news channels circulated a claim that the BBC was funded by China, India's historic rival. In such an environment, journalists have faced increased online abuse and fear of persecution. Free Speech Collective, an Indian advocacy group, reports that 154 journalists were arrested, detained, interrogated, or served show-cause notices for their professional work between 2010 and 2020. More than 60 of those cases were recorded in 2020. Those who boldly stand their ground are targeted and tamed, said Vinod K. Jose, who, until recently, was the executive editor at The Caravan, a Delhi-based magazine. Many legacy outlets have chosen to limit critical coverage to their opinion pages, but finding a lead in investigating it are more important for an Indian newsroom when the government is trying to control the narratives, he argues. Meanwhile, several regions have become information black holes, Mr. Bestard says, and that is not worthy of a democracy. Arguably, the deepest black hole is Jammu and Kashmir, a contentious region in northern India, where journalists have been arrested for their work, including Monitor contributor and Kashmir Walla editor Fahad Shah, who is still in detention and prevented from flying abroad, while independent media outlets have been throttled by restrictions or shuttered. The Kashmir Times, one of the Valley's oldest publications, has stopped producing all but its English-language edition out of Jammu, and even that has been cut from 16 to 8 pages, according to executive editor Anurada Basin. The local authorities there have introduced a draconian media policy, which allows the government to determine what is fake news and take legal action. Apparently, in preparation for the introduction of such an approach throughout India, the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology has proposed an amendment to India's IT rules that require Internet service providers and social media companies to take down news reports that government agencies deem false. I think their experiment in Kashmir is being used as a template in the rest of India, Ms. Basin says, 
The only thing I'm hopeful about is that this kind of authoritarian control is unnatural. It cannot sustain for long. Behind the weakening of India's press lies Mr. Modi's authoritarian populist style of leadership, says Haved Wani, assistant professor at the School of Law, Governance and Citizenship at Dr. B. R. Avakadar University in Delhi. The Prime Minister prefers to address the masses directly, often on his flagship radio program, Man Ki Bat, rather than through the media. He has not participated in a single press conference since 2014. At the same time, his government has sought to remove nuance from public discourse, Mr. Wani says. The government has very clearly outlined this binary, which is that either you're with us or against us, he explains. They have made themselves synonymous with the interests of the nation. However, a nation like India is diverse. Interests and identities are diverse. Curbs and press freedoms have met with little condemnation from other democracies. It was not until February 22nd, a week after the days-long BBC raid occurred, that the British government defended the UK broadcaster and spoke out against attacks on the free press. Some observers worry that such attacks may cause irreparable damage to India's media landscape. The question is, can the world's largest democracy function properly without informed citizens, wonders Mr. Bestard. Defamation is hard to prove. Does Dominion have a case against Fox? This article was written by Simon Montlake, who is a staff writer. Recently released court filings are providing a window into a lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News and its corporate owner, set to go to trial in April. Dominion alleges defamation by Fox, which aired baseless claims by President Donald Trump and his allies about Dominion's voting machines used in the 2020 election. Court documents indicate that Fox executives knew the claims were false, but chose not to intervene for fear of losing viewers who believed them. Fox has denied defamation and called its coverage of election fraud allegations protected free speech. What is the basis for Dominion's defamation lawsuit? The Denver-based company, which supplies voting machines to 28 states, became a target after the November 3, 2020 election. Pro-Trump activists claimed that Dominion had manipulated vote counts to make Joe Biden the winner. President Trump amplified these claims, tweeting on November 12th that Dominion had, quote, deleted 2.7 million votes for him. His legal advisors, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, claimed to have proof of a criminal conspiracy by Dominion and of links to Venezuela's socialist dictatorship. The company refuted all these allegations, as did U.S. election officials who used the machines. There is no evidence that any votes cast on Dominion machines or software were manipulated to change the outcome of an election that Mr. Biden won by narrow margins in swing states. Fox News, the most watched cable news channel, gave ample airtime to Mr. Trump's allies to question the validity of the 2020 election. Both Mr. Giuliani and Ms. Powell appeared daily on primetime shows where they accused Dominion of flipping votes to Mr. Biden. 
Dominion says that Fox's airing of falsehoods has damaged its business. The company has lost contracts in some states and faced pushback in others, where officials cited 2020 fraud conspiracies as a reason not to use its technology. Several employees have also faced threats. Dominion has also sued Newsmax, a competitor to Fox, that tried to outflank it in amplifying 2020 election fraud conspiracies. This competition weighed on Fox hosts and executives who worried about losing viewers to Newsmax if they didn't lean into the conspiracies according to depositions and internal communications made public in court filings. As the preeminent conservative news outlet, Fox is a highly symbolic target. Its efforts to appease aggrieved Trump voters in 2020 to show, quote, respect to the audience, as executives emphasized, must be understood in this context, wrote New York Times columnist David French. Fox is no mere source of news. It's the place where Red America goes to feel seen and heard. The court filings suggest a strong disconnect between what Fox was broadcasting, largely uncritically, about alleged voting machine fraud, and what producers, hosts, and executives were saying internally about the allegations and the individuals who were making them. In a deposition, Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of Fox Corporation, admitted that some Fox presenters had endorsed what he called, quote, really crazy stuff, end quote, and that he regretted not intervening. Tucker Carlson and other top-rated hosts privately disparaged Ms. Powell in particular and even called her a liar. Still, she continued to appear on primetime shows to speak about Dominion. And when a Fox reporter tried to fact-check Mr. Trump's tweet about Dominion deleting his votes, Mr. Carlson told fellow hosts Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram that the reporter should be fired. Please, get her fired. Seriously, it's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. Not a joke, he wrote in a text. What is Fox's defense and how robust are free speech protections? Fox's lawyers say that the network was covering newsworthy events, a U.S. president disputing the results of an election, and that, as a news organization, it didn't endorse the views of the public figures who appeared on its shows. News organizations enjoy broad First Amendment protections, and defamation cases rarely make it to trial. Under a standard set by a 1964 Supreme Court ruling, plaintiffs must show that a news outlet knowingly aired falsehoods or showed a reckless disregard for the facts. The Supreme Court wanted to allow for innocent mistakes so that public debate wouldn't be chilled by libel suits, says George Freeman, a former in-house counsel at the New York Times who directs the Media Law Resource Center It's a hard test, but it's a hard test deliberately, he says. You have to prove that something nefarious was in the editor or reporter's mind. In its filings, Fox News has derided cherry-picking by Dominion of what Fox staffers said about Mr. Trump's allegations. It argues that skepticism among some employees doesn't mean that organization writ large was at fault in airing false statements about Dominion. This line of defense is likely to play out at trial, says Jane Kirtley, a professor of media ethics and law at the University of Minnesota.
Even if Fox executives didn't buy Mr. Trump's claims but wanted to protect their ratings, opinion hosts could still claim that they were keeping an open mind about Dominion and election fraud. What may prove harder for Fox to defend, says Ms. Kirtley, is that Dominion said it sent more than 3,600 emails and other communications to Fox to correct the record, but that Mr. Trump's allies were invited to keep repeating their falsehoods day after day. If this had happened once, we never would have had this lawsuit. It's the fact that it went on repeatedly, says Ms. Kirtley. Fox's hosts knew what these people were going to say. What is the broader significance of the case? The case has become something of a proxy for the 2020 election dispute and the spread of disinformation that led up to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Opponents of Mr. Trump, including many Democrats, would like to see a reckoning for those who pushed his false narrative, even if that means seeing a private company prevail over a news network. At the same time, the case could have consequences for press freedom if Fox appeals an unfavorable ruling and a conservative-dominated Supreme Court decides to revisit the 1964 standard for defamation, says Ms. Kirtley. That possibility makes her and other First Amendment scholars uneasy. I wish this case would settle. I'd rather it never had an opportunity to go to the Supreme Court, she says. Dominion is seeking $1.6 billion in damages from Fox. While victory for Dominion wouldn't put Fox out of business, it would be costly. It underscores that a case freighted with political baggage is, at its core, about commercial interests on both sides. For Fox, reporting too critically on Mr. Trump's baseless fraud claims was demonstrably bad for ratings, since many viewers were drawn to a rigged election narrative, even if the facts didn't support it. For Dominion, the fact that millions of Trump voters believed the election was rigged, a belief that Fox promoted relentlessly, has made it harder to do business in Republican-run jurisdictions. In his deposition, Mr. Murdoch was asked why Fox hosts kept booking Michael Lindell, a pillow retailer and Trump backer who promoted false theories about the election as a guest. Dominion has separately sued Mr. Lindell for defamation. Mr. Murdoch pointed out that Mr. Lindell spent a lot of money to air pillow commercials on Fox. It is not red or blue, Mr. Murdoch said. It is green. From the Points of Progress column, Burn to Preserve and Other Forest Practices from Ecuador to California. These stories were um, gathered by Nick Roll, who's a contributor. First up, the United States. Indigenous women are learning about controlled burns based on traditional native practices and current natural resource management. To close the gender gap in wildfire management, the first prescribed fire training exchange, or TREKS, targeting women was held in 2016. The Karak tribe hosted a session in the Klamath Mountains last October for 50 indigenous women from the United States, Canada, and Australia. Before its land was appropriated in the mid-19th century, the Karak tribe inhabited more than a million acres that spanned today's northern California into Oregon. Karak women were charged with managing fire on lands closest to home. The U.S. recently returned 1,031 acres to the Karak tribe, 
and a co-stewardship agreement with the Forest Service gives Carrick residents more space and authority to manage land through controlled burns. The threat of unmanaged forest is not hypothetical. In 2020, the Slater fire killed two people and destroyed 150 Carrick homes. Indigenous trainees also learned about native cultural burns to care for food resources and other plants. Getting that fire on the ground is like starting to heal a scar, said participant Analia Hillman. It helps our wounds heal through the first stage of fire. In a story from Uganda, the populations of elephants, giraffes, rhinos, and other vulnerable and endangered species in Uganda are on the rebound. After northern white and eastern black rhinos were hunted into local extinction in the early 1980s, a charity reintroduced four rhinos in 2005, and through breeding in a private sanctuary there are now 32. Elephants are up about 400% to 7,975, and giraffes grew nearly sixfold to 2,072, both due to increased conservation efforts over four decades, according to the Uganda Wildlife Authority, the UWA. Political conflict and poaching under a lack of law enforcement led to massive drops in animal populations from the 1960s to the 1980s. The International Union for Conservation of Nature called for more protection of wildlife on private property, and the UWA said more work is necessary to help species such as lions and chimpanzees. But Uganda is home to more than half of the world's mountain gorillas, and the UWA also said their numbers are growing. And that's it for today's Christian Science Monitor. My name's Beth Tavino. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.